Hey up friends, how's it going? Happy to be back with you for episode 38 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. Hang on, as usual, I'm going to have to look that up. Yes, it is episode 38. Yeah, I recorded this one on my recent trip to the Scottish Cairngorms, Aviemore in particular, where I went to catch up with some old friends up there. Support my uh, dear old mate Johnny Barr's annual up battle competition and to do some Scottish snowboarding for the first time in years. And uh, they've had a brilliant winter up there, actually. And I really do recommend it as a fantastic trip if you can get your head around the unique challenges and conditions that come from riding the the Scottish hills. Yep, it's windy. Yep, the hills are tiny. But it's a really unique experience. And much of that is to do with the hospitality and the camaraderie that you find up there, particularly around Aviemore, which myself and my group of friends were lucky enough to experience. Huge thanks to Johnny, to my friend Lauren, to Leslie, to Ewan, everybody else who was so welcoming to us up there. We had a great time and uh, yeah, looking forward to go back. And as I say, while I was there, I took the opportunity to record this conversation with my great friend, Jeremy Sladen. So who is Jeremy Sladen and why is he on a podcast with such luminaries as Travis Rice, Tom Carroll and Lane Beachley? Well, you might not have heard of him. And to be honest, if you're not part of the UK scene, you probably won't have done. But I'd say it's no exaggeration to say that Jeremy Sladen has been one of the most influential men in UK and European snowboarding for about three decades, really. He was part of the first wave of mid-80s early adopters that did so much to launch the sport in the UK back then. And in the subsequent years, has had a hand in every key development in UK snowboarding history. I mean, I always quite like to think of Jeremy and peers such as Eddie Spearin, another future podcast guest, as like those superhuman amateur Victorian polymaths that you read so much about who are forever forming committees, organising events, establishing organisations and generally donning whatever hat it took to move things forward. And that's the case here. Whether it was setting up the BSS, the British Snowboard, actually BSA, sorry, the British Snowboard Association, establishing the retail business in the UK, starting magazines, importing boards, organising comps. Jeremy Sladen and his peers laid the foundations for the sport we know and love in the UK to this day. And at some point in the early 90s, which we do cover in this chat, Jeremy took over at the Snowboard Asylum, which is what he's been doing ever since. I don't know what his official title is, but head honcho will do, which does make him pretty much one of the most influential men in UK snowboard retail and, as I say, in the European industry right now, thanks to his ability by his buying choices to decide, you know, what kit you're going to wear, what brands are going to make it. And as a result, what direction the sport's evolution will take. Like I say, he's a big figure. And that's quite a build-up, right? But I'm going to be honest, I think we were both a bit nervous about this one. And me, because Jeremy is, like I say, he's one of my oldest friends in snowboarding. He's one of my biggest influences. He's somebody who I respect and admire hugely. And I really, really wanted to do him justice. Um, And Jez, because ever since I asked him, he just keeps saying to me, why do you want to do me? I'm the least talented man that's ever on it, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. Like I say, every episode, and I'm going to labour the point again, this podcast is about the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. And if the story of a sec- how a second-hand car salesman from the Nottingham area became one of the most influential men in European snowboarding over a 20-year period isn't that, then I don't know what is, to be honest. 
And above all, what I wanted to find out from Jeremy is why. I mean, I've known Jeremy since I was a kid. And then, like I say, he's always been this huge influential figure in the industry. We got on from the day we met, really. We've always, as I think you're going to hear, we've always had the utmost respect and fondness for each other. But if I'm honest, there's always been something for me pretty enigmatic about Jeremy's love for snowboarding. And that was what I really wanted to get out of this conversation. Like, why? What's driven this career that I've got no doubt has been, to quote the great Jerry Maguire, an up at dawn pride swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about? How has Jeremy still got the same passion for snowboarding? after 30 years literally spent at the coalface how does he maintain the values that have driven him for so long what are those values because make no mistake for all his bluster and larger than life persona jeremy slayton's a true snowboarding romantic another thing you're going to hear in this conversation his entire career has been about passionately trying to impart his own love of snowboarding to as many people as possible and being as generous with that vision as he's able to be it's why he's so respected in the industry because everybody recognizes that, but I've never actually spoken to him about it. So on this occasion, I did. And I'm happy to say in the end, I got the answer that I was looking for. So I'm really lucky doing this thing. I get to meet my heroes, as you know, you probably gathered. But I'm also able to sit down with some of my oldest and dearest friends for hours at a time and have the kind of conversation you're going to remember for the rest of your life. And I'm happy to say that this was one such occasion. I do feel the need to put forward the kind of disclaimer I started the Edley episode with back in episode one. Myself and Jeremy do share a lot of history and naturally we do fall back on some mutually enjoyable reminiscing about some names you might not be that familiar with and some stories that may not translate too well to a bigger audience. But as I always say, I really hope you can come with me on this. This is just a great conversation and Jeremy's story is one of those unsung chapters of the scene's history which may not be as well known as those of some of my more famous guests, but is no less important for that. Um, final point, I did have some annoying technical difficulties on this one right at the very end. I think I got away with it. If it does bother you, I'm very sorry about that. I think I've got a pretty good hit rate on this thing. Usually the quality is pretty good. This time it was a bit annoying, but like I said, I think I, think I just about got away with it. Anyway, enough preamble from me. And here it is, my conversation with a true European institution and one of the true greats of the UK scene, Jeremy Sladen. Enjoy. So go on, give us a little, give us a little mic test. One, two, one, two, one, two. There we go. Get that on there. So we're in Aviemore, Jeremy Sladen. Hello. How you doing? I'm good, mate. Thank you. You? I'm very good. So when was the first time you were in Aviemore? Oh, man, that's a long time ago. Um, I'm going to hazard a guess at probably 1989. Was that, um, was that snowboarding? Yes. Right. So what was the crack? How come you ended up up here? Um, God, these things are like in the long, dark distance past, aren't they? Well, it's a long time ago, let's be honest. I, <laughs> I don't know if my mind kind of can think back that far, squarely. Who were you with? Do you remember that? Um, yeah, I think the first time I came up here was I'd kind of just got in touch with the guys at Acid Snow. So, Gus. Alan Gus. Yeah. And I'd done a journey up to stay with those guys. 
Right. How did, how did you hear them? I'm just going to contextualize that because I think in this one, there's probably a lot of names that we, we're going to know they are, but a lot of people might not. So, I guess. so, so Acid Snow obviously was the original UK snowboard brand, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That Gus Gillard and Al, Al Fleming. Fleming, wasn't it? That's correct. Started in 88, was it? I suspect it was maybe even before that, probably 1987, I would have thought, but, you know. So you got a picture of the scene, there's basically a couple of... 12 people snowboarding Britain. And and these lads thinking, I know what we're going to do, we're going to start a UK board brand, and doing it, basically. Absolutely. And absolutely going, I'm going to start a UK board brand and get a grant from the government to to do that I think it was the Princess Trust yeah and didn't the they get like head. 40 grand or something and they got a lot of money yeah which back sure. then is obviously like a shitload of money yeah so that right is a lot of alcohol <laughs> yeah well is that I'm sure <laughs> and there goes a whole nother storyline yeah well I'm sure we'll get to that famous picture of you lot that does the rounds doesn't it with you lot like stacked up crates on the table Absolute, whatever. yeah right so you came up here to meet them yes so I I was kind of living in um, Gorok and I'd kind of got a job working for sim snowboards and like i said snowboarding was very very small at that time so it was kind of a very much a community so when you kind of heard of somebody snowboarding especially yeah. somebody making their own snowboards you kind of want to be there and see that and um yeah so i'd kind of reached out to those guys and kind of drove up to the middle of nowhere they were based in Lagan, which is runs the road between fort william and aviemore so it's yeah. kind of completely in the middle of nowhere the perfect place to, uh, the to perfect set up place a... to yeah to make a business the, the epicenter of the, uh, <laughs> of the snowboarding industry at the time so i kind of drove up and um that was like the start of a kind of a long and um well, a long association with Avimor. long association with Avimor, but like a, a long association with kind of those guys as well, you know, and they're still kind of good friends today. Obviously, we miss Gus, but, you know, I still see Al quite a bit. And Yeah. So was so. that the first time that you'd met the wider community, as it were? Because it was pockets back then, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, the first time I met the, the wider... The first person I ever met in snowboarding was Eddie Spearing and Dave Ferno. Right. And that was just randomly... I was up at Sheffield Dry Slope snowboarding on my own, thinking I was the only person snowboarding. So how did, oh, oh, right, hold that. So how, let's go back even further then. So when did, okay. you, when did you hear of it? Well, like how did you get into it? So 1984, I was um, going out with a girl whose family were really heavily into skiing. Um, I tried skiing. Oh, I was a bit shit at it, to be totally honest with you. It's that kind of lack of coordination of one thing going in one direction, another thing going in another direction. I can empathise. Yeah. And then I saw Apocalypse Snow. Right. Okay. Where do you see that then? It's not, it's not exactly common. In, no, maybe in a bar, in a ski resort somewhere. Right. And saw Reggie Summers. Wow, that looks amazing. Right. So kind of held that thought. Then... I think the real main catalyst was watching Tom Sims in, I think this is snowboarding. Right. Was the video. And Tom, Tom does this run through the trees and the look on that guy's face when he gets to the bottom was just amazing. And I kind of looked at that and thought, I kind of want to feel like that. Right. Okay. So that was the spark. That was the spark. Yeah. And I kind of went out and um, bought my first snowboard. Again, not an easy thing to do back then. No, it was a, a Dominator Pro. Right. 
Where'd you get it from? Um, Tim Mellor's at Custard Point Surfboards right. in Newquay. So it was at the ski show. Right. Okay. So what year would this have been? This would have been. That probably would have been like eighty six. So that was probably my first snowboard that I bought. But the first time I tried it was that winter of eighty four in Le Mange, where I kind of rented a board that kind of had no edges, nothing, just strap, straps for bindings. Yeah. Battered myself senseless, but had an amazing time. Then kind of came home and made a snowboard out of those kind of plywood surfboards that you get in Cornwall. Really? Yeah. Right. Laid it up with fiberglass, made some straps out of car seat belts, took it to Sierra Nevada in Spain, strapped in it. Did my Jesus. first run. <laughs> That's quite a mental image. <laughs> Did the first turn and like the rivets ripped out and the snowboard disappeared, never to be seen again. Right. Jesus. It's pretty common that, isn't it? I know Chris Moran, our mutual friend, he built one as well. I think he took it up to the Lake District. And, yeah. You know, like it was because it was in such short supply. That was what you did to a certain extent, wasn't it? You... Absolutely. And, and I think it was quite interesting. We were looking at... Um... I was looking at one of these kind of calculators on the internet the other day as where you kind of put in the year of something and then how much it cost in that year. Right. And it kind of converted to what it would be in today's money. Today, yeah. Well, I remember when I first started snowboarding with those boys, which was probably like 1991, I just couldn't afford it. No. I just couldn't afford to buy one. You look at a board, like the equivalent's like nine, nine, eight, nine. Yeah, they were pounds. like, I remember it being, <laughs> and I was 14 or something. Uh, yeah, so so it was crazy, just like, it? you know, it just wasn't an option for me really. No. Right, so you did the classic then, went to the dry slopes, you know, thought you were the only guy doing it. Yeah. And then started meeting other people, basically. Yeah, well, kind of, kind of like, kind of missed kind of like a little bit out, really, in terms of what my catalyst was to actually kind of move from that everyday existence to to going into snowboarding. Right. And that, that came from a, tri a trip I did, kind of, I got my snowboard and I went out to Morzine for just like a, a normal holiday and we were staying up out on um, the Pont de Neon. We were staying at the hotel at the top of the Pont de Neon and that week got snowed off. Right. So we're just sitting up in this kind of hotel at the top of the, the chair, the, on top of the cable car, just bored for six days. Right, Okay. Then the seventh day, we woke up in the morning. It was sunny, and the mountain was totally unridden. Right. All oh, right. And so the, the yeah, the and experience. you know that that day for me, I still lives in my heart as probably the greatest day. Really, I have ever, ever had on a snowboard, and I kind of came home, quit my job. Right. Have you really? Okay. Yeah. So it was that impactful. Yeah, it was amazing. Because yeah. you you are I've known you a long time, obviously, and you are somebody that does romanticise the snowboarding experience, aren't you? You know, the actual act of snowboarding. Absolutely, yeah. Because it you is know. the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah. So so that was all. That was day one. This, that was day one. This yeah. is what I want to do forever. Yeah. And so I came home, went into work on the Monday, handed my notice in. Right. What were you doing? What was the job? Selling cars. So what did you do? What was the What was the plan? I uh, didn't really have a plan. Right. Just do something snowboarding. Really? Yeah. Okay. But then it was quite it, quite cool because it all dropped into place though actually after that because my girlfriend at the time, Sarah, she just left um, university and got a job working with Van Gogh. Okay. In the tent people. The tent people. Yeah. But they had a ski wear line and her 
she had she did a degree on ski wear design. Okay. So she kind of dropped into that job. I was still down in Nottingham, and then I kind of managed to con stroke talk my way into a job with a guy called Ronnie George, who was the Sims distributor. Right. Okay. So this is bringing us back to this. This point. is bringing us yeah. back to this point. Yeah. So I managed to kind of con, like, as I say, con talk my way into this job with Ronnie George, and he actually lived up up in the Highlands in a place called Sarlan. Yeah. So kind of that all dropped in really kind of perfectly. So I kind of moved up to um, up to Scotland. Okay, so that's how you ended up in Scotland. Kind of how I ended up, yeah. And what were you doing for them? What were you doing for Sims? I Just helping sales? Yeah, I was a UK brand manager for Sims. Okay, so g- give me a date on that then. Just because I want to try and get this chronology, you know what I mean? Uh, that was, I'd say... First made contact with Rodney probably late 88. Right. And then kind of went pretty much full time. Right. And at the same time, you're also meeting, joining the dots between. Yeah, exactly. So as I said, the the first people I really met were were Eddie Spearing and Dave Furno, which was just a random meeting at at, at the Sheffield Dry Slope. Yeah. And like I said, at that time, you really didn't kind of meet that many people yeah and meeting dave and eddie kind of then opened up a whole new world of people that you first met because you know they were involved in this whole skateboard scene yeah which i was not really involved in yeah so they had this whole core group of people that were skaters and stuff yeah and then you know that introduced me to a lot more people the martin drayton's of the world and so on and so forth right and then this is when you started clubbing together with those boys traveling yeah i guess this is the point that the the scene if you like although i'm sure you boys didn't think of it like in that way but this is the point that the uk industry starts to almost 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 form isn't it really yeah so it for us it was a case of trying to get people stoked on snowboarding because that that kind of early core group of people were so buzzed on snowboarding yeah and I know for me, where I was coming from was that I just felt like I wanted everybody in the world to have that experience that I had, and just like you, you got to do this, you got to do this. It's amazing, right? So you, you were all kind of. Did you all have that sort of sense of purpose, if you like? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we kind of, we kind of used to do a lot of a lot of stuff. I say events, but you know, <laughs> events is a very loose term. We just used to kind of go around dry slopes. Um, Especially me and Chod for kind of a, a long time. So Chod is Tudor Thomas, who was actually my first boss at White Lines. I'm yeah. just, again, just contextualising it. And yeah, and, and you know, like British champ when he Chod. And, Absolutely. And, and again, like key part of the, of yeah. the scene. To, and we, we used to kind of drive around with snowboards in the car, go to dry slopes and just kind of get people on snowboards. You know, come and have a go at this, come and have a go at this. Yeah. So this is around... The, the turn of the decade, I guess. Yeah, yeah, in 89, early... Yeah, I would say 89 through to about kind of 1991. Yeah, okay. Right, so what are you? What are your sort of fondest memories of them days? Because they're, they're like the legendary party days, aren't they? You know? Well, I think... Yeah, it's... Um, I think it's just the fact that everybody was young and you kind of meet a lot of new people and travelling to a lot of different places with no perception of... Quite normal behaviour almost. And 
there was a lot of very eccentric people. Yeah, that's kind of my in snowboarding. That's kind of my memory of it. Yeah, that when I remember meeting everybody, and it was it was a pretty. Well, those wild. days when you were when you were kids, basically with Bailey, with Bailey and Jamie yeah, yeah. and everybody coming up here, and the, yeah. the the Darren Williamses of the world, the Cy Smiths of the world, yeah, Gus of those, you know, those guys in those caravans down, yeah, at Speyside Holiday Park. Yeah, I mean, they were the first crazy like, days. They were the first counterculture people I'd really met. Yeah, you know, I'd kind of, I'd kind of, and I think it's the same for all of us. And and. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Johnson, who's another friend of ours, told me a funny story about going to some event at Stoke or something. Yes. And it was the first time that they'd all met you lot. I wasn't at that event, but it was the first time they'd all met you lot. And Steve rode Steve Bailey, and he didn't win, but they were, like, mortified. They thought he should have won. And he says he remembers you chanting at him, like, we're from Manchester and we'll cry if we want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember that. That event as clear as anything. Yeah, and he was—he said they were just like. I remember him coming back and telling you, he's like, you know, who the fuck are this lot? And same, same for you. Like that was when it was like, all oh, right, there's a scene, there's a community, you know, like and like that's how it grew, but wasn't I, it? I can remember those saying to Jamie at that event, and I said, I I can remember that that event really clearly because so much shit happened prior to that event in right. terms of like the journey down and. You know, the Cy Smith going through the windscreen story and... All okay, that I, I, come on, let's hear that one. <laughs> but did you not notice that? Oh, you weren't at that event, were you? No, I wasn't, no. So I'd kind of turned up because I'd kind of left those guys to do something else and I'd kind of gone home to my parents in Nottingham and then I'd met them at the dry slope and I got there and Cy's kind of all sewn up with like like big scars all over his face stitched up with cotton and right. needle and thread and stuff like that and he'd kind of um sorry simon um gone through the windscreen of a car right <laughs> playing around at night late at night right okay and stitched himself together yeah the rambo exactly Steve. so yeah, i can yeah. remember that like super clear and i can remember saying to jamie at the end of that and it'll probably back this up after i'd kind of taken a piss out of him for a little bit that that was kind of the first time anybody had really seen Steve and, and Chris and everybody. And, yeah. you know, we knew looking at that, that Steve was, was something special. Yeah. Something new, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I can remember saying to Jamie as we were leaving, you know, his day's going to come. Don't, you know. Yeah. Don't get too cross about it. Well, so were you living up here by then? Like, no, at that point. I, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was up here. Right. Or no, I was on one of my sabbaticals of snowboarding. Okay, so what's that all about? Uh, it's all about trying to create a living out of an industry that sells two hundred boards right. a year. So you, so you were there was points when you were like, okay, this is going nowhere, basically. No, I don't think it was a case of it's going nowhere. It was a case of I need to earn some money because I'm trying to live and drive around on the road to yeah. sell something that I'm only selling kind of, you know, twenty of. Yeah, yeah. Because the market just wasn't ready. Because the market wasn't ready. So yeah. every so often, once the debt levels had kind of got to a certain point, right, I would then have like a sabbatical. Yeah. Go and sell cars for six months a year. Is this kind of when you were in Sterling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. So go, go and sell cars for like six months of a year. Yeah. Pay those debts off and then go back into... Right. Getting out on the road selling snowboards. Did you ever have any doubt that it would take off to the point that it would sustain like an industry? Was it there was any... never a consideration. Didn't it... give a shit. Right. Not okay. bothered. <laughs> okay. So, so 
Well, you were going to do it anyway. I was going to do it anyway. Okay. Right. Again, like that kind of sense of purpose. Yeah. Know? Like, we're just going to do this and see where yeah. it takes us. And it's, it's like I said, it's just that whole thing of just, I want everybody to have this experience. Yeah. And that, that was my, and it still is today. You know, that's just my driving, my driving force is that, that one day that changed my life. And I just kind of think how, if everybody could have that day, how different the world we would live in would be. Right. Well, we've talked about this before that I think we've, we've had the conversation like that. that. That's basically the story that the industry should tell really, isn't it? Yeah, but I think I, it is definitely the industry story. But over the years, there's, there's times when the industry's like hugely gone away from that, isn't there? And concentrated. Yeah, on... how I kind of like to say it's kind of almost disappeared up its own arse. Well, I yeah, think is the, there is that. The, the way to describe that. Do you, do you buy into this idea that snowboarding's, you know, go, gone through like the childhood, the teenage years? You know, there's that metaphor that's used a lot, isn't there? And and now we're coming back to the fact because everyone's kind of grown up to a point that you can... No, I think it's going back to its childhood. Okay. So what? how do you mean? I think it's... I've, I've got this this theory of like we're... You know, during those kind of really big years of the snowboard industry, it was this this pursuit of the mainstream. We need to go after the mainstream. We need to go after the mainstream. And I always just had this kind of belief that who aspires to mainstream? Right. What do you think was driving that then? Just just Greed. Revenue. Yeah, revenue. And it's like, why should we aspire to the mainstream? Because, you know, people people want something different in their lives. And I think snowboarding kind of provided that for a lot of people in those early days. And I think that's what drove the growth of it was people were seeing as this this thing that's different that's going to give you an, an amazing experience. And it's a, you know, I don't, it's counterculture. The word is that the. I mean, I guess I it. Know, I guess it would words. have been back then because, like you say, it was so different. But the problem you've got, obviously, when sports like this grow, is that and become normal, then you lose that that uniqueness or that newness. Yeah. So it's how do you. What what story do you tell then? Isn't it almost? But I think you tell the experience. Yeah, well, that's and I the think thing. that's what we we lost as an industry. We forgot we forgot to tell people how brilliant it was. Yeah, the, the act of snowboarding. Yeah, the act of turning a snowboard. Yeah, essentially. And then we kind of like disappeared down this route of presenting snowboarding as this thing that's that's unobtainable. It's not not achievable. You're watching riders do things that aren't achievable. That the progression and, and story. The progression story. Yeah, I mean... That's not what it's about. No, and that used to be something we really grappled with doing the magazines because, you know, there was always that pressure to... And it it was brand-led, really. You know, it's yeah, like, look at, this, look at this rider. You know, yeah. This rider is so good. This is so hard. And obviously there was a certain area of the industry that was into that and was bothered about that. Usually yes. kids that are coming up, you yeah. know, and that are good. But that isn't a relatable experience for a lot of people, isn't no. it? And and at some point, that's going to start turning people off, isn't it? You know, without a shadow of a doubt. So you think that is kind of what happened? It just yeah. became yeah, for sure. There was there was less to relate to, and there was less for people to hold on to. Yeah, and I've kind of been thinking about this quite a lot recently in terms of who snowboarding appealed to, because you kind of looked at those really crazy growth years, and those 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 years were crazy. And we were just getting like a lot of skaters coming in, yeah, a lot of BMX riders. 
But as an industry now, we kind of seem to stop appealing to those guys and those those skaters and those BMX riders are still out there. Yeah. But we kind of seem to almost ignore them for a little, for a reason. What do you put that down to? I have no idea. Right. I put it down to the fact they just went off it because they saw it differently than what had originally attracted to him. I yeah, remember Christian, I right. Christian Stevenson, when I interviewed him, said that he'd done a, done a thing with John Cardiel. I mean, it's a classic case in point, right? Because it was a couple of years where he's like a snowboard pro. He's in the films, you know, he's like, and then he just went back to skateboarding, didn't he? Yeah. And he said to Christian, like, ah, it's just too ritzy for me that, you know, it's not my scene that really, you know. And I, and I do get that from skateboarders, really, that with snowboarding, it's a bit like, wow, you know, it's for posh kids in it you know what yeah. i mean like yeah no totally i totally agree but 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 we know how that has that happened but we know it isn't for posh kids because we're not posh kids no you know what i mean so like what we like so i like same thing you like the experience of it yeah you know? so yeah, exactly so where's it gone wrong but there's a lot of that in snowboarding isn't there there's a lot of these where it seems to have almost deviated from the path a little bit yes but i think I don't know if we're kind of jumping the gun a little bit and this is kind of what i meant by the fact that we've almost gone full circle that it's now almost like rediscovered itself and rediscovered the joy of riding. And as an industry, it's kind of looking at itself, and especially with this whole kind of movement towards shaped boards, that it, it's now coming back to the experience of the ride. So do you see that in, because you're at the sharp end, obviously, like, you know, running the TSA retail, seeing the reality of it by sales. Is, is it, conv- you know, are more people snowboarding a result of it, do you think? Yeah, and I think, you know, if you kind of look at the feedback you get from customers, there is, there's definitely, there's definitely more of a enjoying the experience, you know. And again, this is kind of going back to this whole shapeboard story. You know, I now get emails from people who've sold those boards to are just kind of, wow, this is amazing, just kind of relating to those experiences that I said, you know, early on that, you know, that made you into a snowboarder. Yeah. And that's become more relatable because it is, you know, that's probably not upset some people here. It's about riding powder, really. Well, I mean, that's the, that was the whole initial catalyst, wasn't it? Cause, yeah, Because totally. there was no parks, there was no decent boards, there was no... Resorts didn't let you ride there, really. Yeah. So you had to go and hike a hill and find yeah. good snow, didn't you? No one went to hike a hill and find ice unless they were very keen. You know what yeah. I mean? And that, you know, that whole evolution of snowboard design and, and shape is now facilitating that a lot more than it ever had. You know, because just the way snowboard design has gone, a, a twin tip board now st- works way better on powder than a twin tip board did five years ago. Yeah. So no matter what you're riding, that that experience is is more attainable, and you, it's going back to that attainable kind of word that I think is driving where snowboarding's going. Do you do you link the health of snowboarding to the to the market? Do you know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, not necessarily. Because, you know, you'll always get... It's quite a snowboardy bore thing to say, isn't it? Like, who gives a shit about, like, the industry and that? You know, I'll ride powder, like, on my grand tea tray, you know, yeah. if the whole thing collapsed tomorrow. But obviously, because you, cause you are in retail and you are trying to tell this story and 
basically encourage more people to do it ultimately. Yeah. Do do you link it to that directly? Can you separate the two? Um I guess that's a really difficult question to answer and probably not one I've ever really kind of thought of. I, I guess you've kind of got to to a certain degree because in, income coming into the industry is going to allow other things to happen and allow, I don't want to say progression because it's not about progression, but kind of progression in, in snowboard design and snowboard technology and making the experience easier for affordability people. Affordability is affordability, massive. Affordability, yeah, is, is a because, like we said earlier, you know, when I started, it was nine hundred quid for a snowboard. Yeah. Now you can get, and they were shit, really, compared to what you can get now. Yeah, you know. So, I mean, that's the way I kind of see it. I I just look at it and I think, yeah, you're going to have people at the extreme end that that very much don't want to link it to that. But then most people, the experience is in the middle, isn't it? Yes, the brand thing is part of it. I think that's kind of generally what a, a lot of people kind of forget is that that kind of experience is the, is the middle. Most people just want to go snowboarding. Yeah. And there's they're not in, involved in the fluff around the edges. Yeah. That kind of, and I really hate the word core, but it's... Um, it, it works. It's, yeah, it works. Yeah. Um, I think it's that core of snowboarders that are bothered about things like that. Yeah. But I think the reality is that core is not very big. Yeah, but they've had such an influence. Yeah, t- yeah, but they are, they're, you know, but, and they still do. They're, you know, they're the opinion, you know, opinion leaders and the people that influence the direction of the sport. But for, for most snowboarders, they just want the experience of going snowboarding. Yeah. Which is great. And like you say, and what I always suspected, because it's something that you take really seriously, isn't it? Because obviously your position and your role is powerful you know you 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 are somebody that can make and break a brand you know the brands yeah. the brands that you bring in really you know you want essentially one of the biggest presences in one of the biggest markets if if you back them they might that might make the difference between success and failure and what's always struck me is you've always made those decisions based upon this idea that you've got to kind of pick the thing that's that's going to convey the experience and it's gonna yeah is that is that fair to say yeah i think uh, yeah i think so i think i don't know whether i'm quite old-fashioned or naive in the way that i kind of make those decisions but i kind of like dealing with people that i like right and you know it's, pe- it's a good... people that you admire yeah you know and i've kind of always had this thing where you kind of you know i can go into a meeting with with the sales manager of X brand, or I can go into a meeting with like Roman Demarque or with Regis Roland or Jeremy Jones, or, you know, these people that are, are you'd look up to and are like heroes. And, you know, who would you rather sit in a room with? One of those guys or just <laughs> some dude that's come from Cadbury's? Well, and you know that because you, you're, you're kind of experiencing that as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what makes the industry work isn't it yeah i think so especially in an industry like ours but then a lot of people might look at that and think it's a bit of a closed shop no if you're not a dick it's easy to get in which has always again been my experience really. yeah you know right and have you i guess that's always driven it from the start then because you seem to have made those decisions throughout your career even when i think back to like the association that you had with Palmer really you know what yeah. I mean which like again 
brings us back to like early 90s years that was a relationship based yeah. thing wasn't it yeah absolutely you know? so that's always driven it yeah so how did that come about but I think that, that well for Palmer was like almost a no brainer for me because because it was Sean Palmer yeah and you know coming from that that background of Sims like Palmer's for me always probably the most important part of snowboarding there was you know I think snowboarding is snowboarding because of Sean Palmer. I think I think he's that important and his role is that crucial. Right. That's interesting because in that, that's not the I mean he's he's important surely but that's not the generally accepted, you know what I mean? Yeah, then everybody might, else is wrong. He might have been a bit forgotten maybe. Yeah, I think he has been forgotten without a shadow of a doubt, but if if you look at that that tipping point of snowboarding in which direction it could have gone in that I think it's that um, that clip of Kidwell and Palmer riding that quarter pipe at the tip at, at, Tahoe, at Tahoe City. Yeah, yeah. When uh, he's about thirteen, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. And I think that is that's the tipping point of snowboarding. I think that's when it tipped into the direction that it took, and I think it was down to windsurfing or skateboarding, yeah, kind of thing, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, alpine. Yeah, windsurfing or yeah. skateboarding. Yeah, that's a really kind of good analogy. And I think Kidwell and Palmer tipped the direction that snowboarding. And you, you for sure now you're seeing that. Um, how would you describe it? Kidwell starting to kind of claim the place in industry legend and and snowboarding legend that he should be at. And I think Sean is probably going to come up to that at some point. Now. Yeah. What What's he doing now? Do you know? Uh, I think so he's just kind him. of going. No, I've not spoken to him for a long time. Uh, I saw Steve Pete the other day as well. And he was saying he's not spoke much with him recently. Right. But I think he's going back to riding bikes. Okay. So. Yeah. I mean, we've never been that <coughs> never been that good at looking after those people, really, have we? No. In snowboarding. No. Not, I mean, bit of a pet theme of mine that really but you know not compared to surfing or but or, do you not think that's just an inexperienced thing of the industry because in, i think the industry and the sport is still kind of really young yeah and still pretty much led well i know i'm kind of just kind of generalizing in europe here still pretty much led by people that were there in the beginning yeah which is a good thing but I guess sometimes it might also be a bad thing. So when did the TSA thing come about? Um, was that the next big sort of career, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like path as it were. Yeah. Um, I think it came about kind of again, back in those really early, early kind of late eighties, kind of early nineties days when I was working for Sims, I kind of, Spent a lot of time with Ellis and Bob Brigham, um, really trying to persuade them to kind of get on board with snowboarding. Right. And I kind of got on really well with them. And I think they they totally got what snowboarding was. Yeah. And I think that came from, I was just talking about this the other day, actually. I think this came from the fact that they were very old school Alpine skiers. Right. And what I mean old school is like leather boots yeah, yeah, and yeah. wooden skis. 
and when it snows, on, yeah. skis are on the wall in the pub somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> and when it snows in the Peak District, they yeah. basically get in the Peak District. Yeah, yeah, and go skiing. Get up Kinder. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think they kind of they saw snowboarding as that. Right. Really. There was that yeah that enthusiasm, that excitement again, and that excitement that they had kind of back in the the forties and fifties with That's skiing. Pretty, it's pretty forward thinking. Oh, it's massively forward thinking. Wait, I mean, when you think about it, TSA is forward thinking. You know, yeah. to, to to actually for that brand, for that company, to put that aside at that time. I mean, when, when, I mean, again, ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, and I think that started a little bit earlier than that. Actually, I think that was probably ninety one. So I can remember they had. It was basically they just formed it almost after the first ever edition of Snowboard UK went out. Right. So I think the first issue had like um, an Alice Brigham snowboard team um, advert in it. And then I kind of think it just then almost morphed into um, TSA. And they got you involved from the start? No, I was kind of, I kind of talked them into doing snowboarding at the time I was like working for Sims. And um, I'd kind of, Kind of done this little experiment at the ski show with them where they kind of gave me a, like a two meter by one meter booth down some dark alleyway. Right. Looking at a blank wall to put snowboards on. And I think that was, I think that was probably November, December 89. I think that experiment took place. And yeah, we did pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and it went from there. I say pretty good. I think they put, sold five snowboards at the which ski would show. Have, which would have been great. Yeah, which was amazing. Yeah. And, um, that then kind of got Bob and Alice into thinking about snowboarding a bit more. And then they decided with Dave Whitlow to set up um, the snowboard asylum. And I think Martin Drayton was really the kind of the first person to take control of that and run that. Right. And then I'd kind of had, I was kind of on my like second sabbatical at that point. But that sabbatical was mainly just living up here, drinking booze and going snowboarding. Right. Nice. Season. Season life. Yeah, it was yeah, kind of kind of a cool kind of winter and summer lifestyle really. Yeah, yeah. And um Yeah, so I'd kind of done that for kind of two or three years up here and then like the Palmer gig came up. Right. So I kinda of left here to go work for Palmer. And kind of two years into that, Martin had left to go and um work for Shally Snowboard full time, I think it was. Right. And those guys rang me up and said, do you want to take over this? Right. So I think that, I was talking to Robert about it today, I think that was, I think it was 94, but I kind of can't remember that much. Yeah, a while ago. A long time ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously, you know, you're really famous in the industry for basically taking everybody under your wing at some point, you know, like, apart from me, how many people have worked for you you know, like, can you give me a roll oh, call of some of that? Because it, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't well, it? Well, it's everybody, isn't it, really? Yeah. So, Steve Bailey, Danny Wheeler, you, Chris Moran, Stu Brass. Um, Steve Christian worked for you, didn't he? Yeah. Um, oh, you know more than me. It's, it's pretty, every, it's pretty it's, much it's everybody. It's everybody, really. How many boards do you think you gave away over the years? Well, I don't know, probably not that many, to be honest with you, because everybody was sponsored. Well, I kind of had this really kind of deep-seated belief for sponsored riders that if you were getting free kit, you need to know why you're getting free kit. Yeah. 
And you need to have that experience of communicating with people who are, in real terms, paying for your free kit. And yeah. that's kind of the, the end consumer. Of course. And And I think kind of giving those riders that experience of actually meeting with and hooking up with the people that were actually buying the product that they were kind of being given, I, I think it was a really good thing for everybody. Yeah, so again, it was this basically spreading the word. You yeah. Know, sending messengers out almost. Yeah, it, it, was, it was good for us because we were obviously getting credibility of having those kind of guys working with us. Yeah. And I think it's good for them because it gives them an insight to what's paying for their seasons. Yeah. Then we go into the... Like you said, the, the the boom years really, don't yes. we? Like the kind of around that first Olympics, really, wasn't it? Like not, I guess yeah. ninety eight. You know, that's when no. it was at the the zenith, wasn't it? The high 2008, point. Two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, I think, was kind of okay. So that's when you would put the yeah, that that kind of probably from yeah two seven two thousand seven eight nine ten. Right. Okay. So later than yeah, it's probably, yeah, they, they were the quite you know the crazy years. Right. What just shift in volume essentially? Yeah, it was just insane. Right. And what did you put that down to? Why do you think that was such a high point? Um, pre-recession, so there was a lot of disposable income floating around. Yeah. Uh, people were. People were getting into traveling more. You know, the whole cheap flights thing was was at its peak. Yeah. So I guess it wasn't costing you a load of money to go snowboarding. Yeah, yeah. It's kit was more accessible. Kit, yeah, it was more accessible. Kit was way better, you know. And, yeah, you, you could go snowboarding for far less money. Yeah. And then since then, we've obviously seen much more of a, a downturn. Yeah, I kind of think that that kind of, it was just, everything working against us because we'd had all those boom years so it was always going to dip yeah it was always going to dip and then i think that dip coincided with the global financial crisis yeah and that that combined with just the natural curve of where snowboarding was made that dip yeah you know twice as hard too do you think those things are inevitable? Those kind of cyclical, absolutely boom and bust things? Because you know, skateboarding. Well, I, yeah, I don't think it's famously... boom or bust. It just it is just a cycle. Yeah. You know? So we've had, you know, we've had oh, probably seven years of that now. Yeah. But you know that that corner has definitely turned. You feel that way? Oh, without a doubt. Right. Okay. So you're feeling pretty positive right now. Yeah, I'm feeling great about snowboarding. Really? Okay. And yeah. what, what's leading you to that conclusion? Just people are getting stoked on it again. Yeah, right. That's they're getting stoked on the riding experience. The industry is kind of now really telling the story of, of, of achievable snowboarding. Back, it's gone back to what made it good at the beginning. Yeah. So uh, where do you see... Because I, I asked, as you know, I asked a few people questions. Yeah. So I, might, I might throw a few in. Because a, a lot of them were definitely industry led yes you know and i think there's there's definitely room to explore that a bit more one of these was from uh david at nidecker um he wasn't actually on facebook but he sent it to me he asked what you think is going to be the situation in 10 years with snowboarding how do you see the industry going it's really kind of difficult because it it is changing with the web but I think there's definitely a place in in snowboarding for bricks and mortar retail. I think that's going to be the big change. And I think for us as a retailer, we've almost got to 
tell tell a story and and sell the experience of snowboarding more than you can online. Yeah, still give people that basically yeah. touch point that you can walk. Yeah, into I think and... I think it would be sad if if the whole <coughs> snowboard business moves to kind of online sales. You see, you don't think that's inevitable? No, I don't think it is <coughs> inevitable. I think you know, giving people. Well, the opportunity to test boards is like a really good example of why it shouldn't, you know, and yeah, making sure you get a good fit in the snowboard boot, you know. But it's still gonna, it's still gonna follow that cycle. In ten years, we, we're probably gonna be on a downturn, yeah, again. But it, you know, it will just keep coming and going. This is from Harriet Boardsport Source. If you were gonna start a snowboarding company today, what would you make? I saw that. Um, I'd make snowboards. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Bindings in boots is too complicated and too expensive to do and it's boring as well isn't it everybody <laughs> loves the snowboard the snowboard's still the yeah the driving thing isn't it it's still the glory product isn't it yeah so you'd uh you'd, you'd... You find th- it hard to get excited about boots no yeah i think there's the obviously got got the place but uh yeah 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 exactly you know but you don't walk around this mode do you and go oh look at the boot <laughs> <laughs> very true very true. So, yeah, probably won't make any money. What do you think about the Olympics? This is from Edley, who's... Uh, I saw that one. Yeah. Um, what do you think about it? Do you think it's po- it's positive? I, I mean, that is obviously such a huge question that has been argued about for 20 years. I have, I have like, a mixed view on the Olympics. I think I was, I was kind of pretty anti-Olympics prior to Sochi. I think Sochi kind of changed my perception of it a little bit in what way just seeing not the boot the boom's not the right word but just seeing loads and loads of kids coming into snowboarding after sochi right loads you yeah know, i think our, our kids business went up about 500 percent wow the year after okay and i don't know whether that's a global thing i think i think for us it was a it was a perfect storm right in the uk so you had you had it on at the right time of the day. You had like Jenny's medal, but you had that commentary. And I know Ed's going to hate me for saying it, but I still think it was the greatest day ever for snowboarding. Ed in the commentary box, losing his shit. And yeah, Jenny, yeah. And it was amazing. Yeah, It was a perfect storm. And, and I think that, that almost kind of gave snowboarding that credibility. I can remember just going to the co-op like that afternoon and just some random old woman that I'd never spoken to before in my life came up to me who's obviously seen my van floating around the village and was going oh it was amazing it right. was the most amazing thing I've seen and the commentary was amazing and well it was definitely like a water cooler moment wasn't it oh yeah, yeah totally and like you say especially with the with the commentary because it was one of them did you did you see that wasn't it basically yeah, yeah. and I know he's like really embarrassed about it but Man, I think you should be so proud of that. Yeah. I think that's the, the greatest Ed Lee moment. And there's been a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so what about this year? You think you, any signs that Billy's and, well, Billy's success will have a similar effect? Yeah, I kind of think, yeah, for sure, in terms of that growth for kids and young people. But I think that like the the effect of snowboarding is kind of more profound over sporting generally. Yeah. I kind of just looking at the kind of behavior of how everybody reacted at the snowboard event and how it was all friendly and all everybody was stoked for one another. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's going to start to really kind of find a place in, in the more mainstream sports. 
Well, I think you, the very fact that the IOC is backing that horse, essentially, yeah. with skateboarding, climbing, surfing coming up. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that I think, you know, what is it, like eight eight years ago, it was still a bit of a joke, wasn't it? It was still yes. like, go oh, here, they come the snowboarders with the baggy trousers and all that. You know, the, the, comments, and, yeah, the, and the presenters that, are still like making cracks, I, I aren't think they? That is, that. that is still there. I think there is... But they're having to yeah, there is that there a little is bit, aren't they? for snowboarding within a, a lot of elements of industry, within sport and stuff like that, because people don't get it. I think they think we're amateurish, I think is the word. Yeah, but, but the success... But, but we're not. That's, you know, that's part and parcel of what we do. Everything's kind of... I don't want to calculate it's not the right word, but... You know, it is what we are, and and our industry and our sport works around that whole thing. Yeah, which when you snowboard, you instinctively understand, I think, don't you? Yeah, you know what, yeah, what, sure. what it is. Yes, and you know that it's worth defending. Yes, and you know that it's different from. I mean, this comes down to what we talked about at the beginning, like why, why you get into it. You yeah, know, like what you're getting out of it. Isn't yeah, it? I kind of felt, and I said this to Billy in the last one. I did kind of feel it was shifting a bit that I felt like the athletes on the TV and I know it's like so subjective. Like when they, I felt they were, were more respectful of it. And I, th- I, I yeah, I, I think, I, I think I thought, you're right. I thought there was definitely a, well, we've got to take them seriously now. You yes. Know, kind of thing. Yeah. And I going think that's, on. that's kind of what I mean in terms of the way things are changing and more mainstream sports are going to have to start to go down that route. Yeah. You know that winning is winning is important. You think that's interesting, but it's not. You know, you get into sport because it's about having a good time, and then kind of the winning comes later, doesn't it? And I think a lot of high-end elite sport forgets that it should be a good time as well. Yeah, should enjoy doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's been the influence of action sports on the mainstream generally, hasn't it? Really. Mm. You know, yeah, without a doubt. That, that, and I think where you see that now being forced into that Olympic agenda yeah. got, is more powerful. i got to say, I can't wait to see the reaction among the surfers and skateboarders when that kicks off in two years. I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Maybe it'll go well. You never know. Well, I think, I, I think it's... Uh, I think surfing's just going to kind of just go through it and not really kind of deviate from what it is. Skating's going to be really where the big kind of... Culture clash. Yes. Comes from. Yes. Yeah. But then I guess if the IOC manages that right, it could be amazing. It could be. I mean, you know, the thing about skateboarding as well is they've got an amazing product, if you like. Yes. Competitively, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, they've abs- literally yeah, got the best format ever. All you need to do is bang that in. Yeah. But will they? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. But then... Going back to what do I think of the Olympics? On the other hand, it's probably damaged snowboarding going forward. You think, okay, now that is interesting. So what, what, why do you say that? I've kind of spoke with Ed quite a lot about this over the years as well. And I think it's that kind of, that shift into the Olympics, which let's be honest, was way, way too early for the sport. Yeah. It shouldn't, it was not ready to go into, into the Olympics at the stage that it did because we didn't have a cohesive governing body you know i was part of the isf you know and we didn't know what we were doing 
we're just like wasters, you know, trying to trying to create this cohesive body to look after this thing that we all loved. Yeah. And, you know, that, that probably needed 10 more years to become something proper. And because, because the Olympics kind of came in and snatched snowboarding away and we weren't in a position to kind of manage that sporting element of it properly, it was given to Fizz. Yeah. And then that, I think that has stopped. It stopped a body forming whose kind of like main goal is to look after snowboarding. Yeah. And I think we've just kind of not been like a rudderless ship almost in terms of, you know, well, the, getting people to learn how to snowboard, you know, just creating stuff that gets people into snowboarding. Well, it's never recovered. No. Because, because basically what you've had is different people, different threads, but there's trying to pick up the pieces, but there's, there's been no cohesive story. No, basically. exactly. You know, it's been brand affiliated. Yeah. Yes. And the I brand, think that's exactly right. And, and the brands have, been led by their own agendas obviously and then occasionally it'll be you know like whether it's ttr there'll be something that happens where it'll spark a debate again i mean the other week it was spencer o'brien's you know open letter kind of you know i mean there'll be something that people will go it's quite interesting read was it was it the thing that ed kind of posted the other week with from the uh the fizz guy ed lee yeah i didn't see that and it was quite interesting just how that you know how he kind of mentioned all that, how everything was brand-led with money-led and stuff like that, rather than sporting and participant-led. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's quite an interesting read. But, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really damaged snowboarding. You do? Yeah, So what in would... terms of its growth. Okay, because there wasn't a cohesive story, essentially. Yeah, and right. there wasn't a body pushing the, the best interests of snowboarding. Right. Because, you know, let's be honest, Fizz aren't pushing the best interests of snowboarding. It's it's a product within within a group. Yeah. So do you see any any other sports that have done that successfully? Mm, no, not really. I guess. And then it, I'm just kind of quite single minded and don't really kind of move out my bubble very often. So. I mean, I guess it comes down to that thing. It's with something like snowboarding as we've been describing, it starts off as a counterculture and it starts off as an experience and you get yep. into it for that. And then as it gets corralled into this mainstream environment, landscape, whatever it is, whether it's something like the Olympics or, you know, the harsh glare of the mainstream, let's say, like, how do you, how do you then, you know, steer it in the right direction? It's, it's not, an, as no. we've seen, it's not an easy thing, is it? No, absolutely. It's not an easy thing. And maybe it's just inevitable that it will be this much of a, shit show I don't know yeah I, I guess I guess but I kind of think it's I think that we've got this thing now where you see the riders still being what you would call snowboarders yeah yeah which that is that makes the difference and I think that kind of almost retains some of what what we are as a people yeah as snowboarders yeah I guess is the easiest way to describe that okay I got another one this is Marcus, Marcus Chapman, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, indeed. Yeah. So, yeah, you've been a huge supporter of, of Calm and Nelson's bike ride. Yep. What's driven that, Marcus asks? Um, I think it was several things. I think 
Nelson was part of the TSA family. Yeah. So again, he like worked with us at the shows. You know, we were kind of supporting him with some stuff, and I think it was that's it was just such a tragic loss and so unexpected. And you know, this uh, I kind of really hate saying it of that cliche of you know the nicest guy there was, but he was. Yeah, you know, simple as and. Um, that kind of affected us quite deep. Well, affected me quite deeply because I kind of had a few friends who. Well, I got a friend whose dad committed suicide when she was younger, right? And I kind of saw kind of how that affected her life going forward, even even today, thirty years later. Yeah, and I just saw kind of Marcus's Marcus's reaction to it was awesome, really. Yeah, his know? his speech at Nelson's funeral is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. Yeah. It was, I mean, it stopped me in my tracks that. Yeah. And how, you know, how he kind of coped with that because, you know, of all of us, he was, you know, other than Nelson's family, yeah. he's got to be the person that was most affected by that. And, and how he handled that and how he directed those energies into the whole calm thing was just, just mind blowing. Like for me, I don't think I'm kind of mature enough to have handled that like that. And right. To have, to have, you know, made such a huge difference. And made and, something so positive out of such a shitty yeah, situation. Yeah, totally. And, and and his, you know, what he's done is, ma- it is massive, you know. And it's made a lot of difference to a lot of people's lives. And I I can't not support that massively, you know. And what, you know, what we, other little bit that we do. Yeah. It's just as testament to... To Nelson and to Marcus. Yeah. I mean, so. that, that's exactly, I think, what drives a lot of people to be involved with it, isn't it? Certainly yeah. what, you know, my little involvement as well. So yeah. really. So one of the things I really wanted to ask you about in this is uh, you did have a a massive health scare a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's about two years ago, isn't it? Uh, yeah, pretty much exactly two years ago. I mean, it's not too overstated to say that you nearly died, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it was probably... 40 minutes away. Yeah. So can you, do you want to talk about that? You have to talk yeah, about no, that? I'm fine with that. So what, talk, what happened? Um, basically New Year's Day, I'd been out on New Year's Eve, got hammered, as you do, then woke up New Year's Day thinking, oh, I've got the really bad hangover. And it kind of didn't seem to go away and just got worse and worse and worse. And turns out I got bird flu. Right. I shouldn't laugh, but you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, almost, it's almost like it's almost like one of them where you're like, "Oh right, that's actually real." Because yeah, oh, it's definitely real, right? And but I kind of didn't really know I had bird flu, but I just kind of started to get worse and worse and worse. And this is basically like a really severe strain of flu, right? Yeah, it does yeah. kill people. It does kill people. Where do you get that from? Then do they know? I have no idea. Right in the UK. Yeah, sure. Right. Probably off a handrail in a shopping centre. Right, okay. You know, it's like I said in that post I put on Facebook, it's not the glory way to die, is it, you know? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Been in so many scary situations and you die from touching a handrail in a yeah, shopping yeah. centre. Right. So, uh, yeah, I got bird flu, which I found out later on. Um, so I got worse and worse and worse. And after, like, five days... I, I was really, really ill and thought, right, I really need to go to the doctors. And went to the doctors, 
passed out in the doctor's surgery. Right. Had, like my blood pressure was, I think it was 40 over 20. Or right. Something like that. So it was super low and um, was having massive organ failure. Holy shit. Yeah. So basically got to, went to hospital, have no recollection of those events whatsoever. And turns out I had, well, bird flu to start with, which had then developed pneumonia on both lungs and sepsis. So is that because your immune system's almost under yeah. attack at that point? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Right. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, it was interesting. So how long did Still that... Still managed to get a selfie out there, though. <laughs> I do remember, <laughs> yeah. So how, so how long did that go on? Um, I, kinda, I came out of that quite quickly, to be honest with you. So I was in... Um, I was in an isolation ward on critical for six days, I think. Right. But you did nearly die. So yeah. and, and because of the organ failure. Yes. What effect did that have on you on your um you know, your your approach to, to life and mortality? Because that's that's no small thing. Um it made me realise that life is a lottery. Really? Yeah. And I think Oh, it sounds it sounds really bad to say. But I think it's just you know when your numbers up, your numbers up, and there's jack all you can do about it. Really? Yeah. You know, if you live the healthiest life, you're still gonna get nailed by a bloody bug on a shopping centre handrail. Right. So has it changed the way that you live your life? Um. Yeah, I kind of think so. Yeah, maybe. In what way? Well, I'm just. Because we kind of not really give a shit about a lot of things that you kind of give a shit about prior to it. As in, like, the day-to-day worries that you might... Yeah, I think so. Right. And has that been e- is that actually been a sea change? Because you can say that, can't you? You can say... I think, yeah, but I'm, I'm quite kind of... As you probably know, I kind of just generally live day-to-day anyway, so... and Right. I think it just kind of reinforced that... I don't know. It's it's hard. I guess a lot of people that have kind of been in. I don't know. Like maybe John is probably the person to speak to who's been in that situation. John O'Very. Yeah, and how how that affected him and. Yeah, I guess people are always going to approach that in a in a in a very unique way, aren't they? I'm just yeah. I'm just interested because you seem to me somebody who has always just lived life completely on their own terms. You yeah, know, you've just you've just approached life and you've you know you. I'm not going to say I haven't thought about it too much, but like you've just always lived your life and that's the way you've lived your life. But I just wonder on that kind of, you know, life changer, whether it did affect it, you know. No, I kind of, I think it just made me kind of go more of the route that I was going anyway. Right. And, you know, like I say, it just makes sure it is a lottery. You know, you're hammered at like a, a New Year's Eve party six days later You've got your head in a box being force-fed oxygen in intensive care in an isolation suite. Yeah. And it's that, it's that moment you go from being pissed to, oh, I'm almost dead. Yeah. And, and it's such a kind of short period of time and how little, how little control you have over those events. Right. Has it, has it made you want to do other things, any of that stuff? Not really like what I do yeah it's just basically confirmed what you always say. yeah I think so right okay is that really sad I don't know I mean I don't know anyone that's been in that situation really yeah. apart from Jono and I know that like Jono very our friend and I've never spoken to him about it so no. I was just 
that's why I wanted to ask you about it because it it is such an experience that's that's unique, really. You know. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I, I I'm obviously interested in. But you know, I was quite, I was quite lax about it at the time, though. You know, what I mean, taking like you so were taking selfies about it. I yeah. remember you were like straight on Facebook, kind of going almost like, "All right, Lasney died." You know. Yeah. And it was a bit like, what? Like. But then, kind of, kind of coming back to it, kind of. You know, after I'd been out of hospital for a while, coming back to that and actually looking at your, your kind of your medical reports from A and E, and it's just like, oh shit, right? I kind of realised it was that bad. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was just hard on Sarah and the kids. I think I was, that's well, kind that's of the more, other thing I was yeah. going to ask you about. Did did they have anything to say to you afterwards about changes that you? Oh, Iona was more pissed off that she had to have like liquid tummy flu because right. it tasted rank. That was kind of her her big beef yeah uh, like, kids so I guess you know she didn't really give a job it's like yeah nice one dad yeah yeah cheers for that yeah and um, yeah I think that was obviously really difficult for them yeah 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 so but we kind of kept it for, we kept it from Ewan because he was um, he was in theatre at the time doing Peter Pan yeah so we kind of didn't really want to distract him from, from that yeah so we kind of kept that kind of a little bit kind of close to her chest while it was going on so a couple more questions have you had a trip like that first day since you know that that day you mentioned earlier have you had has anything lived up to that since no i mean you've been at ball face got lodge. close but yeah you've been at ball face lodge that's a big shout i didn't come close it came semi-close but no i don't think it did right okay so that's so, still the defining day it's still definitely the defining day yeah it's pretty sad, isn't it, that? I don't know if it is sad because I just think it's like, you know, experiences aren't about difficulty or like, you know, they're, they're just they're just a unique set of circumstances, yeah. aren't they? But so, I just watch Will Hughes have these powder days that look amazing every day. Yeah, but... And I, I'm a saddo living off some glory from 30 years ago. I think it's great that that's been the defining thing. Yeah. I think it's brilliant because I like... But is it not sad that I've not kind of chased to get that back... No, because what it, it's what's driven your... One of the things I've always wondered about you is, like, why do you do what you do? You know, why have you done it for so long? Like, why have you had this... Why are you still asked, basically? You know, why do you still care? Because I still want everybody to have that experience. And that's the thing. I didn't know that it was driven by that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and this is why when we started this conversation, I, w I was a bit like, I kind of want to get into like why you got started yeah. and where it came from. Because obviously I came in a little bit later, but we've known each other, you know, 20, 25 years yeah. or whatever. And, and I think everybody's interested in that about you. Everybody that knows you and everybody that knows your like, you know, role in the industry, if you like, whatever, you know, all that sort of bollocks really. But I think everybody is a bit like, intrigued by that like well where has this come from you know why is this guy still doing this really because it's the best thing in the world and you still think that i still think that and it's all driven by this one day it's all driven by that one day i think that's a good thing because you don't think the world would be a better place if everybody in the world had a powder day i mean they're just these days they're quite hard to come by they are yeah exactly <laughs> as we sit here with 130 mile an hour winds up the hill yeah i mean it's a, it is a different sport though isn't it when you do it, sport, whatever. I know people like that. I'm going to say it anyway, but it is different. You know, like when I was in Canada the other week and very lucky to get amazing snow for a week. And I was a bit like, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is, 
this is the thing. This is why yeah. you do it, isn't it? Yeah. You know? and, th- and it's fun, like, hacking around a resort, and it's fun doing all yeah. that. But-, but that's special. And, you know, I-, I hate to use the word being the least spiritual person in the world, but it is spiritual. With that- now, that's funny, because I remember <laughs> you once saying to me, anyone who says snowboarding is spiritual should be shot. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of that powder day, yeah. that, that, that feeling you get on an amazing powder day is not of this earth almost. God, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Shoot me. It's not the sort of thing people are used to using. No. <laughs> um, it is true, though, isn't it? Because yeah. that is what drives people to keep doing it. Yeah. And, you know, have you, have you been to Boldface? No, I really want to go. So, you know, when you're just, like, blasting through trees at Boldface, and, and generally when you go to Boldface, you always go riding with really cool people. Yeah. Oh, you ended up with the guy at Foo Fires or something yes. crazy, didn't you? In yeah, the, yeah. In the, in yeah, the cat, mate. right? Yeah. yeah. And Scamo. And Nick Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. And Dave Lee. Right. Yeah, there you go. And Sansalone. Fair enough. You know, so you kind of, you're Good riding crew. with all these people and you've kind of almost got to pinch yourself and go, no way. <laughs> yeah. And and you're blasting through trees in waist deep powder. Yeah. Amazing. That's what, so, okay. So, I mean, this is a good point to give you the uh, the classic question, the final question. So if sure. you've got one day left, where would you go? What would you do? Um, Pondoneer and after seven days of snow. Yeah, back to that same day. <laughs> back to that spot. Yeah? Yeah. It'd probably be shit. Well, you probably... Well, that's the thing you'll never have to go back to. You'll never find out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, I think we're good. It's a pleasure. The least talented person to have ever done one. So there you go. That was my chat with Jeremy Sladen. And uh, as you can probably tell, we had an extremely good time doing that one. Yeah, I'm just really glad that um, I was able to have that conversation with Jeremy really and find out, like I say, like get to the bottom of what has driven this career, this hugely influential and unsung career. And like I said at the start, I think we got there in the end. I mean, Jeremy throughout this whole thing has been really paranoid that he's not interesting enough and that you know that he's he comes across like a dick he sent me a text afterwards i mean i think he came across brilliantly i massively enjoyed all his insights and stories and uh yeah i just want to say thanks thanks for coming on massively appreciate it so what else is going on feedback corner as you regulars will know if you're still listening um i am off to switzerland next week it's the British Ski and Snowboard Championships in Lax. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go to that. I go every year. I've been going every year for, I don't know, 20 years, something ridiculous. I've got a few podcasts lined up, I should say. There's going to be a lot of people around. I've got one confirmed with uh, the great Brusty, Patrick Armbruster, who has had an incredible career in snowboarding. He's a filmmaker, he's a photographer. He was on board from the start. He was a part of Absinthe Films. Um, he worked on Nicholas Muller's latest film. He's just, yeah, he's a legend. Love Brusty. Been lucky enough to work with him a few times over the years. Massive respect for that guy and very much looking forward to talking to him. Um, I have tried to sort out Nicholas Muller, which is a, one of my most uh, requested guests. Um, we'll see. He's in lax. You know, Nicholas is Nicholas. If he's around, I'll try and pin him down, as you might expect if you know him. He's a bit of a free spirit, that lad. He's not the kind of lad that um, particularly responds to emails or dates in diaries. So, yeah, if serendipity means I can grab him, then 
I'll do it. Believe me, because I know a lot of you want to hear from him. Same with Jenny Jones, another uh, massively requested guest who I do believe might be in lax. Again, I'll try and j- grab Jenny if I can. Um, on that point, I have been uh, putting some posts on social recently on Instagram. I, I am at We Look Sideways, in which I've been asking people to recommend guests. And I've had a brilliant, um, a brilliant response, actually. A lot of people pitching in. Um, I seem to have gamed the algorithm on a couple of recent posts. So, yeah, I mean, go and have a look, really, because there's, there's a lot of chat going on over at Instagram and uh, I'm more and more on Facebook. And, yeah, I just basically, I just want to hear who you want to get on the show. And um, and let's tag them in, like I've been saying, which seems to be working because I've got people uh, replying and showing a bit of interest, which is brilliant. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was I got some feedback off a really close friend of mine, actually, after the Charlie Dark episode. Now, he's, a, he's an avid podcast, We Looking Side, uh, Look Sideways podcast listener christ it's not we look sideways but a lot of people call it that because of the uh instagram handle uh he's an avid looking sideways listener and he sent me a text after the charlie dark one and he said um yeah it was all right i wasn't too into it you know i want much of his story and uh i didn't know a lot about him and yeah you know not one of my favorites it made me think really because when you do this you have a choice to make really when you when you try and interview these people if I'm interviewing Travis Rice on this podcast, the, the chances are that most people have got an idea who he is. You don't need to cover the backstory. You know, I don't need to start off going like, Travis Rice is a snowboard. You all know that. Everyone knows that. So you can just have a conversation. And the other thing is that he doesn't want to talk about the same stuff. So the more I can just have a normal conversation with him, the more we get a good episode of the podcast, which is what people seem to respond to. That when you have somebody like Charlie Dark, uh, who isn't that well known to the audience that I've got here, I do have a choice to make because basically, and that choice is, I can basically treat, do the episode for people that don't know who he is, like my friend, and go, but, or I can basically just try and have a great conversation with him and kind of get you to fill in the gaps yourself. And that's usually what I choose to do. And that's definitely what I chose to do with Charlie. Now, the thing with Charlie is, I'm going to go into a bit of detail here because it is interesting, I think, and it is, it'll help explain why I go about this in the way, that I, the way that I go about it. He's done a lot of interviews over the last 10 years about Rundem Crew and about the Urban Running Move. I mean, when I was researching it, you do a search, there's literally 50 interviews where they ask him the same questions. So the last thing I want to do is go into an interview with him and say, tell me about how Rundem Crew started. Because the guy, as you heard, he's very smart. He's not going to respond well to that. He's going to be like, okay, who's this Muppet who's basically asking me the same questions that I've asked 50 times? What he wants is somebody that he thinks has done some research. He thinks has got some unusual questions to ask him. And often that means starting the story very, very far down the line, as I did with Charlie. And that's exactly why I didn't want to. And I said this in the intro, which is something, another thing my mate pulled me up on. He was like, well, why didn't you want to go into the Rundem Crew stuff? This is exactly why I don't want to go into it, because I've only got a little bit of time. I kind of think if you're that bothered and if there's if there's gaps in the knowledge that I'm not giving you, get on the show notes. I mean, I'm literally compiling huge show notes with like, and it usually says like, Charlie Dart from Rundem Crew link to like one of the 50 interviews do that like that isn't what I'm here for like I'm not here to tell an A to B story I'm here to have an insightful conversation with the guests 
And like I say, if when when it's a Travis Rice scenario, great, it's easy. Everyone knows who he is. Can just concentrate on the conversation. If they're not that well known, I have to make a choice, and the choice I'm making is just to try and have a conversation that's going to put that guest at ease and is going to basically, hopefully, result in an insightful conversation. So. I just thought it was interesting because I've had that a few times from people. They've been a bit like, oh, you know, I didn't really know who that guy was. And I'm a bit like, well, do some work. <laughs> I mean, what, what else am I meant to do? I'm literally doing free podcasts. Massive amount of effort. All you've got to do is turn up, read the website that I do for you, and then listen to it. And if that doesn't contextualize it for you, if you can't be asked doing that work, then I'm not sure I can help you really. So anyway ran over i just thought it was interesting i guarantee i'm gonna get a text off my mate within five minutes because he's gonna think i'm having a go i'm not having a go at all i value your feedback i just think i wanted to explain in case anybody else is wondering because i'm assuming that they probably will why i go about this the way that i do so there you go okay that's that so episode 38 in the bag like i say off to Switzerland, hope to have a few more, hope to up the pace again a bit over the next few weeks. I've been busy, but you know, I've got a bit of time coming up um, this trip. I can get a few ticked off. So yeah, as usual, thanks to, for listening. Hit me up on the old social channels and uh, yeah, I'll see you next time. Nice one.